At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Rogers, the former director of the National Security Agency and the first commander of the U.S. Cyber Command. He's now a cyber consultant and also serves as the chairman of the advisory board of cybersecurity firm Clarity. We're here to discuss how the cyber elements of Russia's anticipated invasion of Ukraine is likely to play out in the cyber and information environments, which uh, Moscow is already expanding against NATO members and the United States, certainly in the information sphere, and will get much worse after the invasion begins and Western nations impose sanctions against Russia. Mike, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. Uh, an absolute pleasure. A word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman, of course, sponsors not only this podcast, but our cy cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and uh, trade show. Mike, uh, I want to go to where we're going to be uh, once, unfortunately, um, we, know we anticipate that, that Russia is going to be invading Ukraine again. Um, but Russia has never stopped uh, an extraordinary array of cyber, uh, as well as information and disinformation operations against uh, Ukraine and indeed across Europe. And increasingly, we're seeing in the United States with major news organizations like Fox mirroring uh, a lot of the Russian uh, rhetoric. Um, and that's certainly been stepping up over the past months and, and, and weeks. What are the Russians doing right now against Ukraine and other nations that you find uh, interesting and worrying before we get to where we might be going once the shooting starts? Sure. So first, let me just make a quick comment. Look, I am not one who believes that it is automatic given that the Russians will, in fact, use Russian military forces to cross the border into the Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure personally that Putin has made a final decision along that. What we've seen, though, is the Russians have used a large traditional force buildup on the Ukrainian border to drive the United States and NATO to a conversation, a dialogue about what should shape the security environment in what the Russians call the near abroad, those abroad, those states, if you will, Ukraine, the Baltics, Caucasus, Central Asia that border, uh, the Russian uh, border. Because it's interesting, if you, look at the, if you look at the paper, if you will, that the Russians provided to the US and NATO in December, it didn't just talk about the Ukraine. It literally argued, let's roll back security practices to the pre-1997 era, read, that's when the Baltic states joined NATO. Right. And let's ensure that the deployment of troops, weapons, the conduct of exercises and the security relationships along the Russian border are limited 
and that the Russians have some formal say over just what those activities are. That was basically what the Russians asked for. That really has been an ongoing conversation now for about six weeks, almost two months. Meanwhile, the Russians continue with this force buildup. And what you're seeing now is the initial NATO and US response to the demands, if you will, of the Russians has been, look, we're willing to talk to you, but many of these are a non-starter. We're not gonna preclude a nation from deciding what alliances or organizations it wants to be a part of. We are not gonna allow a third party to impose some series of oversights or constraints on what NATO can or cannot do. That's what its members should be authorized to decide internally. As the Russians have seen the US and the NATO response, what you're watching now is the troops remain along the border and the Russians are asking themselves, how do we keep the pressure up? How do we continue to ensure that the NATO alliance and the US believe that the Russians are committed to a series of strong actions against the Ukraine that will hold the Ukraine's security potentially at risk. So they've kept the forces on the border. They haven't pulled anything back. They haven't reduced their readiness levels. You've seen them in the last few days talk about a series of exercises they're now gonna be holding. You see, have seen them in the Northern border in Belarus where the Russians had also deployed some forces. You've seen them engaged in a series of activities and exercises. And perhaps most importantly, I would argue the very first Russian response to the NATO and the US initial position of, we're glad to talk to you, but we're not going to agree to many of these things as preconditions. Cyber and the information dynamic have become a very attractive area of response for the Russians. And you have seen that unfold in several ways. Last week, you saw a series of cyber attacks, if you will, penetrations of Ukrainian government systems. In some cases, those penetrations were website defacings. In some cases, they were denial of service efforts. In some cases, they were masquerading as criminal ransomware. And if you looked at the, the malware that was actually uploaded, it didn't provide for the target's ability to actually pay a ransom. It, it really just allowed the uploading of a software program designed to disrupt or deny functionality in the target network, just really using the idea of ransomware and a criminal entity, um, you know, as a facade, that was never the attempt. So what you've seen is the Russians have turned to cyber, among other things, but it, it's not by chance to me that they turned to cyber as one of the very first things they did after the NATO and the US came back and said, no, we're not gonna automatically agree to what you want. That, that's a non-starter. We're willing to talk, but what you have outlined as a quote set of demands that you actually want legal authority behind, i.e. they're almost asking for NATO and the US to sign a formal treaty or some sort of legal framework that would lock all of that in. Um, it's been interesting to see how they respond. Now look at what they didn't target. In that initial cyber activity, you didn't see them go after economic infrastructure in the Ukraine. You didn't see them go after military targets. You saw them engage in a series of actions that were very visible and largely directed against broader Ukrainian government capacity. And I would argue really designed to send a message to the Ukrainian government leadership, but also globally 
particularly the NATO and the US side, to remind them, hey, the Russians have a significant cyber and information dynamic and capability, and they are more than willing to use that as a part of their strategy. How, do you, how does this play out in the cyber and information environment? So one quick point, don't think for one minute that what, I, what I'm saying is this situation is not dangerous or that the Russians have not put them in a position, put themselves in a position where they could conduct significant ground, air, maritime actions directed against Ukraine with minimal notice. They have put themselves in a position where effectively they're ready to execute a wide range of scenarios from full outright invasion to interdiction, blockade, et cetera. So they're definitely ready. So what you're seeing now is both sides are trying to keep the pressure up on the other to say, hey, look, we are serious about this. You must stand down. From the US, what we're trying to tell the Russians is, you must stand down from this aggressive set of actions that we continue to see unfold. Over 100,000 troops on your border, cyber activity, exercises, increased readiness and deployments of forces. You're watching maritime units move from the Baltic fleet. Uh, they're on the process of transiting down and most likely gonna pull into the Mediterranean and then into the Black Sea. What is the US and the NATO alliance doing? Putting increased forces on increased readiness, deploying defensive weapons into the Ukraine, highlighting the fact that we maintain cohesion between the alliance and the United States as to the fact that this Russian series of demands is unacceptable and that the Russian series of activities that we have seen observed, we're not gonna sit by and watch this passively. We in turn will put ourselves in a position where if you engage, in offensive activities, we, the US and the NATO Alliance, are prepared to respond. Um, with respect specifically to cyber and the informational dynamic, what I would fully expect is, number one, I think the Russians wanna keep the pressure up, but I would also be looking for them in the coming weeks to potentially try to splinter the cohesiveness of the NATO Alliance and the US around their willingness, if you will, to stand up to the Russians. And I think cyber and the information dynamic become an important component of the Russian strategy here. I would look for increased Russian cyber and informational activity to unfold in European nation states, as well as potentially the United States in the coming days and weeks. It's why you saw, for example, within the last, within this week, you have seen the Department of Homeland Security come up, if you will, with warnings saying, look at U.S. critical information, critical infrastructure, local governments in the United States, there is an increased potential for Russian cyber attacks against homeland, i.e. the U.S. homeland. And therefore, now is the time to increase your defensive capability, and we need to be ready for potential Russian offensive cyber activity. Again, it's not by chance. And so I, I think you're going to watch that unfold in the coming days and weeks. I expect the cyber activity, I expect the informational dynamic to ramp up. You're already seeing on the informational dynamic, look, each side is working hard from an informational perspective to try to characterize what they're doing in a particular way. For the Russians, they are trying to build internal domestic cohesion around the idea, it's not us, it's the Americans and NATO. They are the aggressors, not us. We, Russia, have not deployed a single entity outside of our sovereign soil. This is all about how NATO and the US have engaged in a series of 
actions that are designed to increase the pressure on Russia, as well as potentially place NATO on the immediate boundary of the Russian border, which, hey, is totally unacceptable to the Russians. So they've got an, an information dynamic domestically. At the same time, you're watching them try to undermine through the information dynamic, using information as a tool to undermine the cohesion that the NATO alliance so far has demonstrated in terms of its, we aren't gonna accept these demands. We're not gonna work with you on an individual basis. You're gonna work with the alliance collectively. And oh, by the way, we are willing to engage in a series of defensive actions designed to ensure that the U Ukraine remains free. We're just not gonna negotiate that away. And so each side, you know, has got an informational component that's pretty aggressive here. And cyber is a significant element of that. In addition to the idea of how do you cyber, I would look for cyber to play out in three different ways. I would look for the Russians to use cyber to weaken the will, if you will, of the Americans and the NATO member states to potentially stand up and I define standing up as actually engaging in a series of actions should the Russians engage in unacceptable activities associated with Ukraine. This is uh, a significant step for, uh, you know, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, right? It's the Cybersecurity uh, and Infrastructure Security Agency that's putting this warning out. Um, and it would suggest crossing a Rubicon, right? I mean, that means the Russians will go kinetic against the United States at a time when they are the belligerent in another country, uh, or in retaliation uh, to international, you know what I mean? They're retaliating against the international response to their belligerents, right? So how how do allies and partners, first, I mean, at what point does that start to become, Mike, uh, cyber causes belli for us, right? I mean, I know that NSA and Cyber Command uh, are in contact across uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the entire attack surface, on a daily basis, right? I know this is all hands on deck. I was going to joke, it's a wonder we got you because uh, the alumni tend to get brought in in moments like this, uh, yeah. I know. Um, you know, how, how, how do we need to be preparing ourselves and how do we need to be thinking about what might be next? Because this could get kinetic in the cyberspace maybe a lot faster and very, very differently, right? I want to ask you about that in a moment. Yeah, number also. one, I think there's a much higher probability of kinetic activity in cyberspace at the moment than there is in the ground environment. Doesn't mean that there might not ultimately be kinetic activity in the ground environment, but I think the Russians in particular would look to the cyber environment first. The second point I would make is it also highlights one of the challenges for the U.S. and NATO. We have tied many of our statements and many of our threatened activities, if you will, to this idea that it's predicated on the Russians actually penetrating the border or territory of the Ukraine with Russian military elements in traditional ground maneuver, if you will, structures. What happens if the Russian strategy, if you will, vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine is not so much, well, we're gonna invade with a traditional ground force, but rather we're gonna engage in a series of activities prior to that, that potentially are designed to, de to degrade Ukrainian capability, degrade their will to fight, degrade, if you will, or create the impression that the Ukrainians 
are actually engaged in a series of illegal and un unethical behaviors towards Russian ethnic entities in the eastern part of the Ukraine. I, I think that's a real challenge because we keep talking about this idea of, hey, if you invade, we're going to do the following, which is what you saw in the press conference the president had earlier in the week. Look at the reaction to his comment about, well, we would respond if it was a significant penetration, so to speak. That begs that, well, is cyber not a significant penetration? Would we not respond? I'm not saying that's what he meant, but I think cyber becomes very attractive for the Russians. And it's one of the reasons why, as I said, it was one of the first things you saw them turn to in terms of physical actions executed by the Russians within sovereign territory in the Ukraine. I also think it's important, and then I'll shut up, to step back Remember what I think they want to achieve, they, the Russians, with cyber. They want to weaken the will of both the U.S. and NATO to respond. How do you do that? You show that you can degrade capabilities. You show that the United States and the NATO alliance, the member nations, are vulnerable to Russian activity over and above what's going on in the Ukraine. Number two, you use cyber and the information dynamic as a way to create fissures within the NATO alliance to break its cohesiveness. You're already seeing concerns about the cohesion play out. You've got Germany, for example, which has said, hey, look, we're part of the NATO alliance. We support its efforts with respect to its response to the Ukraine. But on the other hand, we're not comfortable with the providing of weapons from Germany, even if they're defensive to the Ukraine. So there's already a sense that, you know, there may not be total unanimity of, of opinion and total alignment against what NATO wants to do potentially to try to, if you will, to send a signal to the Russians, look, you don't want to go down this road. The last thing I would argue is look for the Russians to use cyber as a way to inflict economic pain. I would argue the number one calculus in the European framework is they're trying to figure out how they're going to respond to all this. They do not want to engage in, in a series of actions that they believe generate strong economic pain. There is a multiplicity of things we can do that go beyond SWIFT, right? I mean, you can sanction Vladimir Putin. You can put uh, Magnitsky. I think Vladimir Karamurza is absolutely right. You Magnitsky, the whole senior leadership team, uh, the oligarchs, right? All of a sudden that will put pain um, on, on people on whom Putin depends uh, for, you know, as part of his power base. Um, how do you, though, Mike, uh, right, get allies and partners aboard? Because clearly, whatever it is we're saying is not deterring uh, at, at a level, right? We understand, for example, what's a legitimate intelligence operations, right? You and I have had many conversations right. in the wake of solar winds, et cetera, where, you know, we've said, look, I mean, some of this was legitimate, bad on us that we didn't protect it. You know, the OPM hack at the time, I know that you were in the seat when that was happening, was a, it was an intelligence operation, um, right? And ultimately, we study each of these for lessons uh, and, you know, how do we do better and how do we defend better? How do we need to posture ourselves and think about this? Right. So a couple of points. Number one, I don't think it's fair to say we have not deterred the Russians. Look, for all we know, the Russians' initial plan could have been, hey, one December, we're going across the border. One January, we're across the border. So I don't know if we have deterred them or not from what their original plan we have tended to focus on the measure of deterrence is, do we get them to back off from 100,000 plus troops along the Ukrainian border? And do we get them to change their demands, if you will, about how NATO alliance 
membership for the Ukraine is totally unacceptable. If those are the metrics, yes, we haven't de deterred them. I think part of the challenge here, or one of the things I would suggest we do is number one, we need to define a little bit more what unacceptable behavior is. As I said, we started off by defining unacceptable as if you cross the border with troops, that's unacceptable. Does that imply that anything less somehow becomes acceptable? Does that imply, hey, if I engage in aggressive cyber activity against infrastructure in the US or NATO, is that somehow a lesser case that doesn't elicit, if you will, a particularly strong response might not generate you know, sanctions or other entities. I think we need to really spend some time thinking about just what is acceptable or unacceptable behavior. That, that's one area I don't think we have exactly right at the moment. I think we tend to focus too much on one particular um, scenario, i.e. the Russian doing a very traditional armed invasion of the Ukraine. And there's a lot of lesser cases to me that the Russians, in, in my opinion, have a much higher probability of executing. Again, don't get me wrong, the, the, the long-term objective remains the same. They want a measure of control and they wanna be able to preclude NATO activity in the states and the environments immediately on the Russian border. That remains the Russian strategic objective here. We'll have to figure out what they believe is the, how far do they think they have to go in order to achieve that. But I think we ought to be talking about, look, it isn't just an armed invasion here that will trigger potential sanctions and more aggressive efforts by us. It's right. a cyber activity. It's about the information dynamic. It's about if you think you want to take this into the electromagnetic spectrum, for example, look, we're just not going to accept this. Um, so, I, and you saw this play out a little bit as I said, in the, the international, as well as the domestic reaction, when in the press conference earlier this week, the president talked about, well, if it's a major event, we will trigger things. That um, certainly made the Ukrainians a little unsettled when they heard that. One of the biggest challenges we face at the moment, each side, US and NATO on one, Russia on the other, each side has made very aggressive statements about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So the challenge becomes, how do you vent off this pressure? How do you develop a way to get each side to back down without feeling that they have lost face or in so doing have lost all the advantage? You have to convince you know, both sides, I'd argue particularly the Russians, that there's a way to have a constructive dialogue. There's a way to get to a better end state without these series of activities. That's where I think we all wanna go in a perfect world if we can make that work. Are, are you comfortable, A, do you think that, uh, that the, the Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, and others will sort of help uh, either by aligning themselves with Russia or in coordination or with, with the Russians? in order to do something against the United States? If, so if I was in the Russian shoes right now, I'd be trying to weaken the cohesion. I would be trying to test the will of the US. And quite frankly, I would be arguing with other authoritarian states like North Korea and China. These series of activities you're seeing out of the US and the NATO alliance, where if you will, they are attempting to contain you know, our, our power, our legitimacy, hey, this is not just a Russian issue. North Korea, China, you should be concerned about this. Iran, potentially others. I would look, if I was the Russians, I'd be trying to make a bigger case 
about how this is an issue, not just about the Ukraine, not just about Russia, but this is a broader issue about how some of the democratic states in the world are willing to, to band together, if you will, to create these military alliances and economic and engage in a set of economic and military activities that from the perspective, I'm not saying I agree, this is the argument the Russians would make, right. designed to forestall our strength as a nation. They're trying to weaken us. And that's the argument. If I was the Russians, I'd be saying, guys, well, if it's us today, it's you today and tomorrow. Right. I'm curious to see if the if the Chinese in particular would buy into that. If their view would be, you know, by somehow coming out and supporting the Russians, either explicitly or implicitly, is that in the Chinese best interest? I don't think you're going to see anything along those lines until the Olympics are done. The Chinese don't want the Russians, don't want the Olympics disrupted. I would not right. expect them to sit on the sidelines until March as a minimum. But after uh, that, I'd be curious to see what kind of position they take. Do, you know, I, I was um, having this deterrent conversation with a friend of mine who's a very good uh, strategist with a lot of government experience. Uh, and, and one of the things he says is, look, I mean, deterrence works if the other guy knows what your capabilities are, right? I mean, this is a little bit like Dr. Strangelove. If you create a doomsday machine, you better let the other guy right. know about it. Otherwise, it's, it might not work. We, the terms. U.S., to publicly acknowledge that we have used cyber um, against the Russians in the last several years in the course of execution of the 2020 election, the 2022 election. So I don't think the issue is that the Russians don't believe that the U.S. has cyber capability. I don't think that's the issue. The, the issue is much more in my mind, the, do the Russians assess that were they to engage in aggressive cyber activities, it would somehow trigger these massive sanctions and other actions that the president has said, look, if you invade, this is what we're gonna do. Right. Just put another way, our worst, not our worst fear, we should be worried that the Russians view cyber as a way to be aggressive, as a way to inflict pain, as a way to disrupt the alliance, and yet still not trigger a significant response from the US or the alliance. That is not a good place for us to be. With each operation uh, or even precursor, right? It's a potent learning experience, right? I mean, one of the things is, I think one of the reasons Putin is doing this is to uh, further complicate uh, Joe Biden's politi political life in the United States, right? You have him regarded as uh, unsuccessful, right? Uh, the facing inflationary pressures, his legislative agenda is stalled, his own base is angry with him. Uh, hey, why not add another persistent challenge, right, to make him look weak uh, on the international stage? Uh, or, or rather, hey, Joe, you couldn't stop him from going into Ukraine, could you? You know, and, and obviously you have Republicans who do smell political blood in the water in 22 and 24, and, and Russian efforts that make it seem as though, um, you know, kind of to tell the, the Russian case in America might, might help uh, in that instance. And, and as you said, right, we saw Russian fingerprints in 2016, uh, and indeed, um, you know, the you know, U.S. government went to heroic lengths to keep uh, Russian and Chinese uh, fingers out of the 20 election. L lessons sometimes happen after a conflict is open over, but sometimes you get a sense for what are going to be key lessons that might be coming down your pike, right? Uh, if, uh, what, what, do you, what, do we, what are the lessons we need to be open to even before this um, thing starts? 
rather than necessarily waiting for it to be over because I see a multiplicity of lessons uh, already. Yeah, so let me, uh, two quick comments. First, I think you're right about the timing. Look, if you go back, they actually did a force buildup in the same territory across within Russia, across from the Ukrainian border back last spring. And then we saw them back down over the summer. Why are they doing this now? Look, I, I think their sense is America is politically fractured. This president, you look at the polling, you look at uh, perceptions among some, I think they view hey, political leadership in the US. I'm not saying I agree, but there are, I think their assessment is political US leadership is weak at the moment. The US is very fractured. The US is dealing with a host of other issues from COVID to the economy, et cetera. Hey, this probably isn't gonna really be important enough for them to really massively directly take us on. I think the winners also attracted, look, they know that Europe largely counts on Russian generated natural gas for heating and for running of you know, their economy. Again, it's not by chance this is happening in the winter and not last summer. The Russians could have moved those troops earlier, but they waited, I think, in part because, again, they feel the current timing plays to their advantage. You look at the fact we've got a brand new government in Germany. You look at the fact that we have significant elections coming up in Europe between in France and in Italy in the course of the next 90 days. You look at the fact that the UK, while still a part of the NATO alliance with Brexit, is no longer part you know, of the EU. So I just think the Russians think that this time period offers great opportunity for them and presents them with advantages. I don't think they're going to be right in the long run, but I think that's shaping their calculus. With respect to the most important part of your question, hey, what are the lessons we can learn? So number one, I would argue, could we stop fixating on ground activity as the ultimate determinant of what nations ought to be doing? What, what, this, what this shows you is we're in a world in which the spectrum of activities associated with conflict and crisis are going to invade, are going to involve a whole lot of other sets of activities that have the potential to be equally damaging economically, politically, militarily, that are well short of the traditional armed invasion, so to speak. So I'd urge us right. to rethink, define what are the actions that really should trigger response from us, the US or NATO. Um, secondly, I think we also need to think about, it, it was interesting, we very much the alliance very much publicized, hey, we're providing defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. Think about anti-tank missiles, et cetera. I'm thinking to myself, why aren't we talking about the defensive cyber capacity that we are providing to the Ukrainians? Why aren't we, and it's not that we're not doing it, but I'm like, why aren't we, why aren't we highlighting the fact that we're giving them more defensive capability, not just in the traditional ground and air and maritime environments, but we're giving them more defensive capability in the cyber domain. I would make that very much a part of the strategy. I would be talking about that very publicly. I would also be talking about the information and the spectrum dynamics here, um, because clearly those are areas that the Russians thinks are strengths for them. It clearly are present options that they view as very attractive right. that offer them lower risk. We have got to change that calculus. Hey, very good. I, two quick comments. Sure. About cyber. Number one, it's interesting. Look for cyber, not just from the Russians, but if you look, for example, in Belarus, 
in, in the last few days, you had a pro-democracy group hack the Belarusian railroad system, arguing that they were doing this to stop the, the Belarusian government from using the rail system to move Russian troops. My point is the cyber dynamic is gonna play an increased role from multiple parties, not just the Russians, not just NATO in the US. You're gonna see a, a set of, I suspect, independent actors as well, potentially view cyber as a tool to help push whatever their potential position is. It might be pro-democratic citizens in the Ukraine or Belarus, for example, who feel, hey, look, I'm gonna use cyber to express my displeasure to attempt to interdict or forestall the Russians from being able to do things. Cyber, again, another thing we always need to remember, look, it's not just something that's under the control of governments. There's a whole broader set of actors from criminal entities to groups that operate both independently, as well as you have said previously, who act as surrogates, if you will, and provide plausible deniability for governments. I, I just think that's something we're gonna need to watch here. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think um, our perception and, and concept of warfare uh, needs to adapt with reality. Our adversaries are going into this space because they view it to be a gray space where uh, they can get away with stuff. And we may uh, have a very traditional way of looking at war fighting, right, of territorial boundaries. Uh, right. And I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, your community uh, has been in contact for a long time in a space that is extraordinarily kinetic. And yet people are thinking, eh, you know, it's not that bad, right? Stuff's not really exploding. Yeah, no, I, I have to admit the analogy I used to use in the White House at times and with the DOD leadership was in, in the military, we often use this idea of phases from peacetime to crisis and after crisis. And phase zero is the expression we often use to describe traditional peacetime activities. And I used to say, so do you really think that what's going on in cyber right now should be considered phase zero normal peacetime activities? Is this an acceptable normal peacetime to us? I don't think so. And I, I agree totally with your point. Where we are in one domain may not reflect where we are in others. And yet we tend to have a one size fits all approach to this often. Uh, and, and again, right, you, in order to deter, you also have to make it clear to your adversaries uh, and to your friends, right, where, where those lines lie. Uh, and I think we've been relying too much on ambiguity, and it's not really helping us. Yeah, you got to have three things. You got to have capability. You got to have will or intent. And then you also have to ensure that the adversary has an understanding of what will trigger response what is acceptable or non-acceptable behavior. I mean, you'll sometimes hear it referred to as the red line. It's those three elements that really shape, quote, deterrence. And unfortunately in cyber, I, I don't think we're totally aligned in the three. And I don't think we've looked at deterrence broadly in the most cohesive, fulsome way, so to speak. And I don't mean this now, I, I don't want this to come across as well, I'm criticizing my old world. I just think it's, we gotta make sure we align those three things. Uh, Mike, you're always welcome on the program. Always enjoy the conversation. We're already looking forward to having you back on again. Thanks so very much for joining us, sir. All the best Thank you. and uh, look forward to having you on again. Thanks no. again. From cyberspace to outer space, 
Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit NorthropGrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.